Now, for those of you who are uh, visiting with us, uh, we uh, do engage regularly, most often, on the first Lord's Day uh, of the month uh, in a consecutive study in our Confession of Faith, which is the London Baptist Confession of 1689, and we are in Chapter 13, which is entitled of sanctification. Now, we uh, were in this chapter some uh, weeks ago, and we are returning to it uh, by way of a part two uh, here uh, this morning, but there will be uh, some review of what was looked at last time. As we begin, by way of introduction, I was thinking afresh uh, this week uh, a text that I think of quite often in regard to our interaction one with another uh, in the body of Christ. It's a passage found in Acts chapter 11. Uh, and this is when a report has come to the uh, ears of the leadership of the church in Jerusalem about some rather wonderful things that the Lord appeared to be doing in Antioch. And uh, bringing conversion to Gentiles and, and others. Uh, and they had heard of this, and in order that they might uh, have a better idea what was going on, uh, they sent one of their uh, favorite sons, a man named Barnabas. And we read uh, this, going back to verse 20 of Acts chapter 11. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. And this is the phrase. And when he came and had seen the grace of God... He was glad and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. So he went to this church and he saw something. And Luke tells us that what he saw was the grace of God. All right, now, if this text were not here in the Bible and I were to say to you, can you see the grace of God? Well, you say, well, on one hand, of course not. And in the other, in light of this passage and others, we say, well, of course you can. You can't see it conceptually. It's a real thing, but it is, as we articulate it at times, it is a doctrine. And when I say you can't see it, what I mean is you can't hold it in your hand. You can't place it in a container and say, say, what have you got in that envelope? Well, it's the grace of God or something like that. You can't put it on a slide and put it under a microscope. But when God's grace enters into a life, when it comes to anyone, the Bible says he or she becomes a new creation. And in that sense, you can now look at and behold and witness, you can see and you can hear the grace of God operative in someone's life. I'm watching the grace of God. When I see someone come to faith in Jesus and I see them uh, making some strides and progress in their Christian life, what we are watching 
what we are beholding and seeing literally with our eyes and hearing with our ears is the grace of God. Paul tells, and tells us in Titus chapter 2, a wonderful text, uh, very important to some of this that we are discussing today. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. That is, there is this grace of God in the person of Christ that has come into the world and has brought salvation. And that salvation has a life-changing, verifiable, visible dimension to it. Now, because the grace of God is a real thing, and on the one hand we say, well, it is real but invisible, that is, it cannot be visually contained and seen, but because it does evidence itself in, its, in our lives and it is therefore observable, we are given in the word of God exhortations toward self-examination. Test yourself. See, is the grace of God in you? Is it evident in your lives that we can see in ourselves and there is a righteous sense, and we want to be careful with this, there's a righteous sense in which we can see the tangible evidence of God's grace in someone else's life. Which is why when somebody wants to join our church, we have in our constitution the reality that we want to have some time to be able to see some visible fruit manifested in somebody's life. The exhortation of the apostles bring forth fruit that is in keeping with repentance. There is some effort on our part not only to see if there is a knowledge of the gospel in somebody's testimony, but also is there an experience of the gospel. When a man is being set forward as a potential pastor or deacon, certain expressions of the work of God's sanctifying grace are set forth in such a way that the apostle can say, it must be God's grace which brings salvation, which is apart from works, it's not of himself, that's not the ground of his boasting, but it does so change a person that there will be evidences and those evidences must be there if that person is to be qualified uh, for the ministry. This is not who and what they are by nature, particularly when you see that in Titus chapter 1. Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true, therefore reprove them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. But from that group of people, God had saved and was sanctifying them to the degree that could now say he must be the husband of one wife. He must be a father who rears faithful children, etc., that God's grace has become now evidence. It is observable that you can look at what the Bible says a transformed life looks like and then actually see those dynamics in a person's life. Now, if you're working your way through the confession, 
uh, you'll see that there is a somewhat of a logical progression in the unfolding of the chapters, why it begins, where it begins, what it then issues into, and then what follows from it. Uh, it wasn't just there are 32 doctrines put into a, a container and then shaken out and people reached in like a fishbowl and uh, pulled out doctrine of God, doctrine of end things, doctrine of the church. There is a progress in them. And up until this point in, in, in recent chapters, there has been a focus on the internal and even the secret work of God. But if someone says that they have faith and that they are called by God and that they have been justified and made the children of God, the question does come, will there be any proof or will there be any evidence of it? And the Bible says that the evidence of that is the work of what we are now calling sanctification. That is a progressive work by which a believer is being made more and more like the Lord Jesus. Now, last time I, I read through, and I'm going to go ahead and do this again. I want to read through the paragraphs. Uh, you can find them uh, in the back of your hymnal if you're more comfortable using your uh, phone or your tablet if you have it there. Uh, it's, it's readily available, 1689 uh, Baptist Confession of Faith here. We're looking here uh, at chapter 13, paragraph 1, uh, which gives to us uh, something of the overview of the doctrine of sanctification. And it says this, they who are united to Christ, and let me just say here the idea is all they who are united to Christ, or you could say they and only they who are united to Christ, effectually called and regenerated, having a new heart and a new spirit created in them through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection, are also farther sanctified. Now, in conversion, set apart, definitively in this sense made holy, separated from the world and unto God. That is God's work of grace. But what's being focused on here is this, well, what about now? What about for the next 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years of my life? What about the warfare uh, in my life? What about the struggle of the Christian life? So that's what's being focused on. But if they've been effectually called, they have been regenerated. If they've been given a new heart and a new spirit by virtue of Christ's death and resurrection, they will be and are farther sanctified, really and personally, through the same virtue. That is, this is not disconnected from the person and work of Christ. It's not, well, now Jesus has saved me, now I do the rest. That's not what's being said. All of this flows from the virtue of our new life in Christ. Really and personally through the same virtue and by his word and spirit dwelling in them, the dominion of the whole body of sin is destroyed. And the several lusts of it are more and more weakened and mortified and they are more and more quickened and strengthened in all saving graces 
to the practice of all true holiness, universal holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Paragraph two deals more with the basis of this warfare. This sanctification is throughout the whole man, yet imperfect in this life. So that's simply saying, have you ever met a sinless person? No. Have you ever met anybody that thinks they're sinless? Sure, all the time. There abide still some remnants of corruption in every part, wherefrom arises a continual and irreconcilable war, the flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And paragraph three deals with the progressive hope of the believer in the midst of this battle, in which war, I'm thankful for that kind of language, in which war the remaining corruption for a time may much prevail. Yet through the continual supply of strength from the sanctifying spirit of Christ, the regenerate part does overcome. And so the saints grow in grace, perfecting holiness in the fear of God, pressing after a heavenly life in evangelical obedience to all the commands which Christ as head and king in his word has prescribed to them. All right, so again, there's so much here. Uh, this is the kind of thing that if you wanted to, I know some people preach through the confession, and uh, this would probably be an eight or nine part or ten or more part uh, sermon series. But we, we considered, and I, I gave that there are, if you want to break this down, that, what, that this matter of sanctification is universal, real, necessary, supernatural, active, difficult, progressive, and ultimately victorious. And so we looked at, in our last time together, universal. And again, we've already touched on that this morning. That is to say that it involves every Christian. And again, there are some Christians who are more holy than others. There are some Christians who are more like Christ than others. There are some Christians who are more like Christ in some areas and some who are more like Christ in other areas. All right, so this is part of what goes on uh, in this life. But what's being brought out here is that there is no one who is joined to Jesus, who has experienced the saving work of Christ or the power of the Holy Spirit, that's resting in and trusting in Christ, who has been given a new heart and a new mind, who does not have within them a disposition and a determination to follow after the Lord and to pursue holiness. That is, they, they want to know the will of God. <coughs> if you know somebody says, I'm a Christian, they have no desire to know the will of God. They say that, there's a, that they are Christian. They have no desire to walk after Christ in obedience that they are content with all of their sin, that, you know, all of that, then it does raise the question about whether there is a new heart or a new life uh, within them. Uh, okay, again, I'm not going to, I don't want to just reteach everything I taught last time. But secondly, it's real. Uh, this is the language here in paragraph one, really and personally. Uh, when we speak of sanctification or a believer's holiness, 
There are two ways that we can describe it. Uh, if we were to do, again, a, a whole uh, sermon series on this, there is what we sometimes refer to as positional sanctification, in which the believer is seen in union with Christ. And in that sense, uh, the believer is viewed before God as, as holy and as holy in Jesus, as holy as Jesus uh, is holy. Uh, you see that in a passage like Hebrews 10, uh, 10, that, but, uh, that we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. There is that positional sanctification, but what is being focused on is this issue of active or pursued sanctification, which affects our lives, our witness, our words, our decision-making, our relationships with others, and our relationship with the triune God in the here and now. And this is the emphasis of the Bible's teaching on holiness, both in the old and in the new. When I say it is real, I mean that these things are more than theoretical. You see, prayer is not only, uh, sorry, sorry, our prayer is not only that God's will would be known. Jesus taught us to pray that God's will would be done. And that doesn't just mean by everybody outside there, but that it would be known and done by us. It's not just that we would know what love looks like, but that we would actually love. It's not just that we would know and understand and pass a test on mercy or on prayer, but that we would actually learn to pray and learn to be merciful. Again, not just to understand my need to put sin to death, but by the help of the Spirit, actually doing that day by day and doing that continually throughout my life until I see the Lord in death or he returns in glory. And so, you know, there's tension here. Yes, before the Lord, we have a perfect righteousness. And on earth, real men, real women, and real young people, once bound by sin, once marked by certain sins, repent of those sins, and by the help of the Holy Spirit, know regular, ongoing success in putting those sins to death. Well, I know what's coming, but I just wanted to, uh, us to be able to say that. So again, uh, we read here, again, that by this same virtue, by his word and by his spirit dwelling in them, the dominion of the whole body of sin is destroyed. That is, something happens to us in conversion, that there is a breaking of the mastery of sin. And that, again, now you note the language here. They're not saying here, the writers of the confession are not saying, well, if that happens, or we might think, well, if that happens... Well, then we're, we're just always victorious all, all the time or that we are perfected uh, in that holiness. If, if victory has come and the rule and reign of sin has been broken, therefore it must mean this. And, and, and it doesn't because you're going to try to understand all that the Bible says uh, about this, not one verse in isolation, but putting the truths of Scripture together so that its several loss are again more and more weakened and mortified, etc. Uh, verse three, or paragraph three again says that the saints grow in grace, perfecting holiness uh, in the fear of God. But it is real. They do know real help in really growing in grace, really becoming more like Jesus, that this is not theoretical, it's actual and observable. So that as I said, you can actually witness holiness 
for witness when somebody is striving to be like Christ. You can see it, you can hear it. We have seen that it is necessary. We've already uh, touched upon this. It's necessary for the assurance uh, of our salvation, a passage referenced in our confession, Hebrews 12 and verse 14, pursue peace with all men in holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And then we noted that it is supernatural. Uh, and what I want to remind us here is that we're not simply talking about uh, changing ourselves. We're not talking here about 12-step programs and you know, those things can and are for some people very helpful. Uh, there are people who by sheer will and determination change certain things in their life that were sinful patterns and into uh, better patterns. But that's not what we're getting at. And, and even as we do emphasize that brothers and sisters, you take an active role in this, by which I mean that you are not merely passive, that you're not merely waiting for God to change you. You know, I've had people say, well, I'm, uh, I don't read my Bible. Will you pray that I would? I struggle with that because I sometimes want to say, no, I'm not going to pray that you will. Read it. I'll pray that you benefit from it. But what do you mean that I'll pray that you read it? What do you expect God to do? Puppet you? And that's what some people want. Pray that God would do this. Well, listen, God will help you. You want to put it to death? You want to fight? God will help you. But it is, God will help you. It is supernatural. Those who are united to Christ, effectually called and regenerated, having a new heart and a new spirit created in them through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection, are also further sanctified really and personally through this same virtue, by the word and by the spirit. Sanctify them by the truth, Jesus prayed. Your word is truth. And so part of the hope and desire is that as we are under the ministry of the word, whoever is preaching the word of God, is that this is going to be a means by which your sins are challenged, by which you are confronted in them, by which the truth of God is presented and the, and the holiness of Jesus is made attractive and desirable to you, and that as you sit under the word and come under conviction of sin, that you will take that to the Lord, seek forgiveness and seek strength by the Spirit, Word and Spirit, working these things out. Fifthly, and we're already touching on this, it is active. And by this I mean that our will, our thinking, our feeling and our attitudes are involved in this. It's not all that's involved in this. Don't, you know, if you, by the Spirit, take either of those out. It's not by the Spirit, it's if you by the Spirit put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You've got to be involved in that. But brethren, this isn't bootstrap, this isn't come on man, you can do it. It is Spirit of God, aid me and help me, strengthen me. It's one of the reasons Paul prayed in Ephesians chapter 3, that believers would be strengthened with might by the Spirit in the inner man. And while we affirm, again, you know, the idea, some people say, uh, let go and, 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 and let God. Yes, let God, but that doesn't mean let go. It certainly doesn't mean uh, letting go of your own 
uh, will and determination to fight your sin. All right, that brings us to where <coughs> we pick up here. It is difficult, and I have parenthetical, not impossible. Is difficult, not impossible. In which war, our confession says, in which war? If you have the idea that, that the Puritans were so uh, self-controlled and uh, so holy that they never felt anything of this, well, put that notion to death. In which war, although the remaining corruption for a time may much prevail, yet through the continual supply of strength from the sanctifying spirit of Christ, the regenerate part does overcome. It's difficult. And one of the texts that's brought out, I mean, there are many texts that we could deal with here uh, in this subject, but Galatians chapter 5, where it talks about that the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit lusts against the flesh. And that there is in this what our confession calls, it is an irreconcilable war. You, you don't compromise in this. There, there's nothing in which the flesh is going to say, look, all right, tell you what, I'll let the spirit have this, 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 and this part, and uh, you leave me this and this part. And you say, well, okay. No, uh, this is a cat and a dog, you know, in this sense, fighting all the time. Now, I know not all cats and dogs fight. I understand that. But <clears throat> follow the analogy. <coughs> and then the language of this, and I think that the writers are picking up on this language in First Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, it's the language of your own determination. That's addressing the will of God's people. I beg you. That's a pastor speaking. Brethren, I beg you. I beg you be in the fight. Stop compromising. Stop excusing. Known patterns of sin in your life. You're going to have to fight. But he says, they are fleshly lusts, and listen to what he says, which war against your soul. So brethren, when I say to you, and when I encourage you, when I encourage me, brethren, let's stay in the fight. It is a fight. And that there are things that as you strive to be more like Jesus in a certain area of your life, whether it's the area of purity, and you've known many, many failings and many fallings, and you think every time I strive, every time I try, I come to a day, I come to an hour, which I feel like I am overcome. Listen, that you're not alone in that. There is someone making war against you. There is somebody striving to compromise you. There are schemes and there is an enemy. Yes, flesh and blood, but more than flesh and blood. Yes, ourselves. Yes, our own corruption, but at times outside of ourselves. We need to understand that. If, if, if this is going to be 
your determination, again, you know, we start the new year and some of you maybe are resolved, I'm gonna do better in this area, I'm gonna fight harder in this area. Well, again, know that it is a fight and what that fight means, difficulty. That all of your attempts to be more holy, all of your attempts to make progress in godliness are going to be resisted. You know, I, I used to hear sometimes preachers uh, back in my early days, uh, as a Christian, I would sometimes go to a conference or a seminar and I'd hear some talk about overcoming our sin and it was always placed in this way that it just sounded so easy. I remember being at one Christian concert and like encouraging you to like picture your struggle and just put it in your hands and offer it up to the Lord or uh, other people saying that you need to you need to stop rowing you need to stop fighting you need to get into the boat and raise the sail and just let the spirit of God blow you know blow you here and where he wants you to go it sounds wonderful but that's not the language of the Bible listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 7 and you, you're familiar with the context, but verse 23, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death. That there is something warring. And then he goes and uses the... Um, as he's talking about the hope of victory in chapter 8, he reminds us of the reality of warfare that is even seen in the created order. And it says this in Romans 8:22, For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is, uh, um, excuse me, uh, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, that is do not now see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. And there's, there's tension there. There is the hope of what we are going to be and the reality that in the here and now there is struggle. And we have this struggle at times in, in evaluating ourselves. And we have it as we have tried as pastors here to, to help evaluate others. So where do we, whether when I say all of us in this regard, where do we as pastors and where do we as a church see somebody who's in the war or try to determine, are they in the war? Are they in the fight? Are they in a part of the fight where they are being for a time overcome? Does that happen? Do believers for a time sometimes, they're in a, they're in a part of the fight where they're not doing well. You study any war, right? And, and it's not just, we, you know, we, 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 we won here, here, and here, and here. No, it is we won here, but there was resistance, and, and, and then we lost this battle and all, and all of that. 
So where do we, as we look at somebody and see them struggling or failing or sinning in a way, where do you exhort and plead and challenge? And when do you step in and say, look, this, this needs to be public or now there needs to be consequences? In listening to somebody giving a confession of some sin, do you say, well, that is obviously incompatible with what you're striving to be as a Christian? And when do you say, well, sorry, that that is of such that it needs to be dealt with in this way? And when do you simply say, I'm so thankful that you've been brought to repentance and come to your sanity? Again, we are reminded in all of this that there is labor and there is striving. For everyone, for everyone. I don't, know, I don't know anybody in their Christian life who does not have something that may not be as overt as other things, but something that reminds them that they have not only needed a Savior, but that they still need a Savior. Some temptation, some pressure of the heart and mind to think, to speak, or to live contrary to what we know to be the revealed will of God. Now, the confession here deals with what we commonly refer to as backsliding. And again, we get down to this, that there may be a season of failure. Now, the question comes, how long a season? Is it hours? Days? Weeks, months, is it ever years? Some of you have really wrestled with this, and particularly as you have grown in your faith and you look back at a period of your life where you were not pursuing the Lord and you wonder, okay, did I just now get converted or was I converted then and backslidden? And, and you wrestle with it. You wrestle with it when you come to join the church and when was I really converted and uh, is my previous baptism valid, invalid, you know, all of those kinds of things. <coughs> I don't know how many of you would be willing to state and say, I, I can say that there were uh, two periods of my life that I can look back on and, and say that there, were, there was a time of some backsliding. Uh, again, didn't mean I went back to the world. I, I was still going to church and I was still occasionally in my Bible, but my heart was very cold and, and far from the Lord. Um, and maybe you've experienced that. I imagine more than one here has experienced that. There may be time in your life when your spiritual life and spiritual appetites are exceedingly low. And maybe for a time you even leave off the house of God. Maybe times in your Christian experience where sin is done and there is very little care of conscience. The, the Pastor Martin used to talk about the, the nerve endings of your conscience have been rubbed raw. Now sometimes when somebody's in this experience, they like to say, well, they comfort themselves by saying, well, I'm just like David, or who's the other one? The people I should have asked. What, so people use David as an example of backsliding. Who's the other one people sometimes use? Peter. All right. How long did Peter's backsliding last? About three hours or less. 
actually, yeah, yeah, yeah three, three, three or four hours where he went from, I'll die with you, and cutting off an ear, to I don't know him, to weeping bitterly. So if you want to say you're like Peter, then I hope that you're saying your backsliding lasted about six hours. What about David? What was David's experience? Now, his was a longer time. So, yeah, you want to say nine months, ten months, probably a little bit longer because there was some backsliding that led him to the point where he took Bathsheba. But what was David's conscience like during that time? Was David's conscience easy during that time? No, you, you find this in a passage like Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. And then, of course, we could speak as well. I, I would trust that if you're like David, that your repentance will be like David's, that it was open and it was very clear uh, in regard to his sin. So I wanted to say that because what I, what I, what I don't want anyone to do, it's, it's very different to use David and Peter for comfort when you've been awakened to you and, and made sensible. It's another thing to try to make that a soft pillow for your head while you're in your sin. Do you understand the difference? Don't think to yourself, well, I can do this. I can commit adultery. I can be fornicating. I can be involved impenitently and this, that, or, or the other sin. And I can do that because David spent nine, ten months in sin. That's, if David were here, he'd say, please don't use me in that way. God's hand was heavy on me, night and day. So again, those things may be helpful once brought to repentance. They are not intended to bring you peace while you are in your sin. But there can be hope afterward when you recognize, and this is the, the hope here, that the shepherd will leave the 99 and, and find the one who's gone astray. And so there may be a time when you look at it and you say, well, how do I know where this one is? And how do I even know about myself? But how do I evaluate a loved one? How do we evaluate? We have people right now as a church that we are pursue as pastors, we are pursuing and striving to determine, is this a sign that they're not converted or is this a sign that they are a very wayward sheep in need of repentance? Well, one of the things that we will know in that is that the Lord will use our labors as a shepherd seeking the, the, the one that had gone astray. Um, all right, let's consider then uh, it is progressive. That's one of the things that is brought out here in the uh, confession. And simply again, it is saying that this does not happen all at once, we've already talked about that to some degree. Uh, there is growth in the Christian life that where we go from being babes and infants and children to being uh, young men, as, as John says, and then strong. 
but even those who are uh, in various parts of the Christian life. There are ways in which we are weak and we are strong. And again, as I said, there are ways in which you might be strong and another is weak, and they're weak in a way that you're strong, uh, etc. But I want to say this in closing, that it is victorious. God will bless your determination to obey him. Sin shall not have dominion over you. You're not under law, you are under grace. Paul could say, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it. God will bless you in your determination to be like him. Paul said to the Philippians, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And again, this is a passage that shows the tension between the human labor and the divine work. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Who's that addressed to? You, to me. For it is God who is at work in us, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Here is the hope of the believer. One day we will see him and be like him. On the day that the Lord Jesus comes and we see him and are made like him, when we stand before him, Jude tells us that we will stand before him faultless, without blame, and with exceeding joy. And that the Lord will present the church to himself, to his father, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. And so, brothers and sisters, if you're, if you're in Christ, you're in the fight. If you're in the fight, it's going to be difficult. If you're in the fight, remember to call upon the Spirit. If you're failing in the fight, ask for a fresh supply of the help of the Spirit. Cry out to God for help. Allow others to come alongside and help you. You're not alone in the struggle. If you come and you confess to somebody, listen here, I'm struggling, they may say to you, I've never struggled in that way. But they will say, but I know what it is to struggle and let's help one another. That's part of the reason why we're here, not just to hear the same word, but part of the same body, supplying for one another, helping one another uh, in these important ways. Well, let's ask God's blessing uh, on these things. Our Father in heaven, thank you for these moments to spend uh, around your word and considering these truths. We thank you, Father, for those who have labored in the past and creeds and confessions to strive to put together the entirety of biblical witness on these important things. Aid us, living God, that we would be those who pursue peace with all men and that holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Aid us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.